0: From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country
1: today.
2: Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk.
0: In this episode, we talk with Larry and Elizabeth Mueller from Brandon Hills Vineyard in Yatkinville, North Carolina. Brandon Hills is a boutique vineyard focusing on making wines that appeal to everyone.
2: Wine Class with the Wine Mountains is back. This time they teach us about terpenes and how they really boost the aroma of a wine. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back. Pour a glass and listen.
0: So we're here today with Larry and Elizabeth Mueller from Brandon Hill's Vineyard. Larry, Elizabeth, welcome to Cork Talk.
3: Well, thank you very much for having us today. We're excited Uh, to have you here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And uh, it's been a long time. So um, my name is Larry Mueller. And this is my wife, Elizabeth. And uh, we own uh, Brandon Hill's Vineyard. It's about three miles south of Yadkinville in the beautiful Yadkin Valley of North Carolina.
2: You do have some really nice sloping hills when you're there too, like you sit out on the deck and you can see, this is why they called it Brandon Hills. And the area, I guess it is, right? Yes, that is
3: correct. And as you guys know, uh, most vineyards you to go to in the world, all in beautiful uh, picturesque, beautiful areas or beautiful places. And uh, Brandon Hills, we may not have the best, but uh, we certainly do have a very nice uh, view of the 40 acres of Rolling Hills, which was originally a tobacco farm, a vineyard.
0: As was a lot of the vineyards in...
3: That is correct. That is correct. Area, so. That is correct. <laughs> so tell us, how did you come to Brandon Hills Vineyard? Well, it's actually quite a long story, but um, I'm sure we can go through this. Um, I've told it so many times. So prior to 2017, uh, we were looking for a small vineyard to buy. And we were looking in southern uh, Virginia, either... Nothing in that sort of price point or they too expensive. And obviously when you get to like a 5 or $10 million range, the amount of work that goes into that, as you know, it's full-time. So we have other business interests as well. So it would be just too much and the distance to get there. So then we started looking like North Carolina. Obviously, we had traveled many places in North Carolina, Yadkin Valley. And um, out oh, this one Saturday morning in 2017, in February, and I was looking on the internet, Brandon Hill's Vineyard. I said to Elizabeth, hey... You ever heard of a Brandon Hills Vineyard? She says, no, never. I said, well, get in the car. We're going out there now. Perfect. It looks quite interesting. So we got out there, and a the young guy working behind the bar in the tasting room. He's like, oh, how are you? And it's on to snow, actually. It's on to snow. Oh, wow. Snow was coming down and uh, said, open every single bottle you have. Don't worry, I'll pay for it. The guy looked a bit nervous. <laughs> I said, I'll pay for them all. Like, he didn't know what I was trying to do. So I tasted all the wine. I was like, "Hmm." Interesting. I okay, go, well, thank you very much. We paid. We left. Huh. And as I left, I called my estate agent and said, hey, Shirley, this place, we've got to get onto this. Some has some potential. Here. And that was in February. And by April, the deal was done. So that's how the whole thing started. Like We saw that the foundation was there. Right. The land, the foundation had been set. Even the wines had the potential to, to build on. So that's how the whole thing started.
2: It makes for a great story. I mean, go in, open up every bottle. Yes. Uh, You knew what you were doing. Obviously, the person working at the time was like, what is going on? No, this guy's
3: crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: I'm sure he'd never encountered that before. So, you know.
3: So, um, yeah. So that's how the whole thing started. And uh, when we took possession of the vineyard in April 2017, we shut it down for three or four months, uh, did some alterations, uh, fixed things up. For example, Pam had a big, uh, that fish tank.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And then it's so not just the fish tank, uh, fish tank. Sorry, uh, <laughs> the um, downstairs, the actual filtration system was just huge.
2: It was a big tank. I could only imagine yeah. it had to take so, up a
3: good portion. Yeah, it's an ocean to sea uh, tank, right? It's a salt saltwater salt, salt tank. So the filtration system downstairs was just huge. I'm like, oh, man, like we aren't in the oceanarium business here. We. Like we in the winery business. We need a place to put store wine, to sell wine. This thing's got to go. So eventually found a guy in Winston-Salem to come there. And just, I gave it to him. Okay. You just take it. You can have it. Dismantle it and take it. You can have the fish. I don't, I don't want one cent for it. It took him about like three weeks. I'm sure it was massive. A month. Yeah. First, took the fish out. Right. Oh, Nemo was still in there alive. <laughs> <laughs> and what about
0: Dory? Was Dory
3: still there? Too? <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. And they had to get all the then to drain that thing, and then dismantle the whole thing downstairs. Oh wow, that was a big project. Yeah. And then we put in that new refrigerator, put in that dishwasher, the back um, kitchen, and have that other tasting area.
2: It's a nice way to make it a little more functional too, because yes. now you have the big bar in the middle. And then you also have the one on the side there too, so you can kind of split things apart if you need to.
3: Exactly. So, um, what else did we do there? I think that is about it, really. Just generally painted the place and fixed it up and got things uh, ready for reopening. And uh, we opened in July 2017. Uh, as you can imagine, things were pretty slow in the beginning. And I said, told Elizabeth, it's going to take five years. And now we're in our fifth year, so it's come full cycle, full transition from. Some days sitting there, not one customer even. It's pretty disheartening. You're just sitting there, not not one customer even.
0: Well, you had to rebuild the brand a little bit because it wasn't as popular when you bought it. And then you took those months to, to redo things. And so folks weren't used to coming by. And so now word has gotten out, I guess, and you've built a following. And I'm sure Saturdays and Sundays and maybe even Fridays are much busier than that.
3: They certainly are. And yes, you're correct to rebrand it and get the name out. And being sort of like out in the middle of nowhere too, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and being a small boutique winery, and not being allowed to have the signage, which is one of my real pet peeves, like with the state, right? Why can't we have some? Why must we we'd be open like five days a week, whatever it is, and have people there working from Wednesday to Sunday and on all this, you know? So you aren't have signage on the highways. and Word of mouth, Facebook, Instagram, going around to little coffee shops where they sell wine and trying to promote it, doing live tastings myself, trying to get the word out there, Elkin, the Fairfield Inn, you know, Right. having on Friday evenings and customers there, oh, Brandon Hills, where's that? People look all confused, <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it took, it's taken us five years of um, just grinding away, constant grinding.
0: So you've talked about kind of the, the structural things that you did to the tasting room and, and the facility itself. But what about the vineyard? Can you talk about um, how, what the changes were to the vineyard? since?
3: Okay, so when we bought the vineyard, it was in uh, February, as we said, when we first visited it right. in, in those beginning months. So you couldn't really see, and obviously with um, our lack of knowledge of vineyards per se, of vines per se. I mean, the, the vineyard was sleeping, so you couldn't really tell per se what was going on. But when the vines started to come alive, we noticed that there was a lot of, uh, maybe some disease that had not been looked after so well. And we had to, um, to make a decision, are we going to pull all these vines out or are we going to, and they could have survived another four or five years, replanted some, and you're going to, eventually you get the point, you're going to have to pull them anyway. Right, sure. Uh, or do we just restart right away? So we decided no, we're just going to pull everything out and restart. So here we are, three years roughly later. Uh, they're looking pretty good now. Struggle with some of them. The vermentina we're struggling with. So we're going to pull that out and replant uh, Chardonnay this year. And mm-hmm. we still have two different clones of Merlot, okay. which are doing the best. Hmm. For some reason, the Merlot just hmm. loves it there.
2: Yeah, could be the site specific.
3: I mean, it, yes, it must it, be. It is. Merlot is a very picky grape. Yeah. For some reason, it loves it there. And um, we're hoping to get some nice Merlot this year. As long as there's no frosts, of course. Fingers crossed. <laughs> so, um, then we have uh, Barbera, which is one of our signatures. So. And then we have Petit Verdot, the Clone 400, which is used by Jones von Drell and all that. It's a good, it's a good. Uh, and then we have Cabernet Sauvignon. So, but like I said, the Merlot, for some reason, if you actually go back to the 2010 Merlot, and we still have some in the library there, still drinking. And it's still drinking. It actually tastes pretty good. So the, for some reason, the Merlot loves that little hilltop there.
0: Mm, yeah, we, we had um, an old, I can't remember the vintage we had, but it was one from the previous <clears throat> owners. And we had it for a while. And it may was it a three maybe or a four? It may have been. But anyway, we had it many years later. Yeah. And it was still there. I think it
2: was a seventh. It might have been a 7. It must have been a 7. Yeah. Correct. And it was stunning still. Yeah. So, and yeah. We had a, a 10 as well before. Yeah. And it, you're right. It it was, it, this was maybe 2017, 2016 when we had it. And it was still holding up very nicely. So, I can only imagine it's still doing really well.
3: Yeah. Even the grapes last year looked pretty good on the Merlot. But we didn't pick them. We just left them. The birds ate them.
2: Get their last book. But this year before. could be a whole different story. <laughs> right. Right.
3: right. <laughs> and, uh, So yeah, and also let's get back to the vineyard. I mean, as you guys know, it's a uh, never-ending, never-ending work. And we'll only see now again how many died over the winter and all that. So it's constant replanting, rethinking, even though we only have just under four acres. It's still a lot of work. I can't even imagine what the big guys, the amount of time and effort that goes into. And we have two ladies helping us in the vineyard. And we even get students from the college to help us. So Elizabeth and Amanda, I mean, they're there. In the evening, sometimes weekends, hmm. helping, spraying, uh, pruning. I mean, I can't even imagine what 40 acres would be of vines. Yeah, you would, need,
0: you would need more than the, the, that number of people to, yeah, it's you know, exactly. to take care of it. So sure. I mean,
3: 20 or more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's a lot of work. People don't realize, and neither did I until I embarked on this journey. Like, uh, it's one thing drinking wine. But now you realize what it, what it takes to make one bottle of wine, you certainly do appreciate it. Oh, sure. Absolutely.
2: So let's actually talk a little bit about that journey then. Um, so you mentioned that you were looking for a vineyard in either Southern Virginia or North Carolina. Why? What inspired you to want to purchase a vineyard?
3: Um, just something inside me, I think. Just something that, uh, that uh, for the love of wine and that sort of, I think you have some sort of passion for wine. Right? And to be in this business as well, you can't have any fear of uh, It's a very, very difficult business, which I'm sure you've heard from a lot of people you've interviewed. Oh, yes. That's a You can't be intimidated by this business because there's lots of ups and downs and a lot of challenges in many different ways, whether it's the weather, vineyards, uh, uh, disease, getting your product's name out there, getting it marketed. How are you going to do it? Would you do it through restaurants, through supermarkets, direct sales only, on the internet? So there's a lot of challenges here to um, to get stuff out there. Yeah. So it's not, not an easy business. I know a lot of people just think it's like, I'd love to own a vineyard. Well, yeah, it's it's a lot lot to work to it. So
2: And you seem to really think about the logistics of it too, from everything from the growing to the production to the selling and the marketing to running the day-to-day business, you seem to have a good handle on all of that. So you're very business-minded.
3: Yeah, so we worked it out eventually. (laughs) We weren't really in the wine industry. So, like we said, we grew up in South Africa where um, they've made wine for over 400 years. And so we used to go to a lot of the vineyards, Cape Town, Stellenbosch, and all that. Started out there. And then when we got to North Carolina in the late 90s, uh, we started traveling around here. Yeah, and, and you know, in those days, there wasn't much. Right. Yeah. And the wine was terrible. I mean, let's just be honest. Yeah. It was yeah. terrible. Yeah. It takes a while to <laughs> It was fine. terrible. Yeah. yeah. So when you look back all those years ago, how far North Carolina wine has come in all aspects, and especially the Yadkin Valley, it's, it's quite unreal. Where it is today, wow, certainly encouraging. We're very proud to be part of it. So we're doing our little bit to try and promote it get over the, a lot of the, the people. As soon as you say North Carolina wine, they're like, oh, it must be that sweet stuff. And you try and tell them, no, we actually make great dry white wine, rosé. Uh, we actually got a silver medal in New York against France, Italian, Australian rosés. And they go, no, it can't be. Well, you've got to come out there and taste it. You know? We make great red wine too. It's mm-hmm. come a long way. It's highly drinkable now. We make some Bordeaux blends. I'm telling you, I've even confused the French if we had to. Yeah. If you put a blind tasting there. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think
2: North Carolina needs to embrace that more. People recognize yeah. the single varietals. The People recognize Cabsov. But we shouldn't really be afraid of blending because that's how you can really create something unique, something special, something that tells what the area
3: Exactly. It's like Virginia has Petit Verdot, I think is their like go-to red wine. right? Like North Carolina needs to have some sort of direction here too. Where are we going? Like, what is our white wine? What is our national red wine? Is it going to be a Bordeaux blend or is it going to be a single varietal? Me personally, I love uh, blends. You, 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 you just can express things so much more versus just a single uh, varietal. But I, I would say in great years, when it's a great vintage, then you can make a great, just a 100% Petit Fideau or a Cab Franc or, or a and whatever. Mm-hmm you got to
2: work with what nature gives you, with with what's in the vineyard.
3: Exactly. Me, personally, I love to play with the different uh, grapes to make a good Bordeaux blend. Hmm. So, to me, it's just a challenge. People ask me, hey, Larry, how do you come up with all this stuff? So, a lot of times, I'm just like, if I'm driving, or when I used to be sitting on planes in <coughs> the airport, got nothing else to do, I just start thinking of things. It's like writing a hit song, right? So, thinking like, oh, okay, I make so much Petit Fiddeau, so much Molo, and you're just like, oh, that's what you're going to do. But inevitably, it never works out like that. As you know, <laughs> once you get there and you start make, doing the blending, it's like, okay, now it needs a bit more of this. No, take that out. Put this in. Take through this. So, And eventually it works out in the end.
0: So let's let's maybe dive a little bit into, into the wine process. So your vineyard is is planted, replanted and you're hoping to get to harvest grapes this year Correct. in 2022. But you've... You're still selling wine, you're still selling North Carolina wine in your tasting room. Uh, so talk about where that wine is made, maybe, and, and kind of the approach then to getting those blends that are specific to Brandon Hills.
3: Okay. So we have a partnership with uh, Windsor Run Cellars, uh, Chuck Johnson. He's been very good. Him, Chuck and Jamie have been very good to us from the start, uh, from when we started, a lot of guidance and a lot of help in the beginning that first year, six months a year, just how to get started. Uh, And then uh, once we got a grip of what's going on, started to impart what we were looking for, trying to get like our wines, let's just take the dry wines, the white wines, the red wines. We're trying to get to go in a specific way, what kind of taste we're looking for, and impart that to get that, uh, that kind of taste, which you've got now, I think. So, and obviously, as you know, every vintage can't be the same, but we get it pretty sort of close now. And um, so we only use uh, grapes from the Yadkin Valley for now. If, until our finds are ready, it all comes from uh, the vicinity in the Yadkin Valley.
2: Very cool.
3: None, none of it's made anywhere else. I would say 90% would come from Windsor Run or Shadow Springs.
0: So what, is, what are some of those flavors that, you would, that you're looking for in white wine and red What are stylistic things that you're looking for?
3: On, on the red wines, like we have our Barbera, which is a medium-bodied uh, Italian wine, more like an everyday wine. And then we have the Raptor Red, which is a blend as well. I would say it's medium to full. And then we started making the Raptor Red uh, Reserve, which only made in the best years. So we made the 2017, which was predominantly Merlot with a bit of Cab Sauvignon and then some Petit Verdot and some Chamberson. And that sold out in no time. Last year it was already sold out. And people demanding the next reserve. Well, we're not going to just make a reserve for the sake right. of making it.
2: If you can control the weather, exactly. you'd be a very rich man.
3: Yes. So 2019, as you know, it's going to be the best vintage ever. It'll be, who I don't know hopefully in the next 10, 20 years, we'll even get a year like that again. We've made, we have just released the 2019 Raptor Reserve, which is a blend of uh, Cab Sauvignon, Petit Fideau, and Merlot. Just three wines this time. Turned the whole, topsy-turvy, turned the whole thing on its head. So it's a big red wine, um, 14.5% alcohol. Wow. So far, it's selling very well. So we're looking, we're looking for that like, nice like, Bordeaux, like a like a hotme or uh, uh, that kind of like, style of the of the red wine. Smooth, nice, nice drinking, great nose. That's what you are looking for.
2: Something Just, a little more expressive then.
3: Yes. Yeah. And you have a lot of people coming to the vineyard, a lot of people are starting out to drink red wine. So you are got to like think of what your customers right. want too. Sure. If somebody's, if it's too big, too tannish, too many tannins, all that. Some people, it's too much for them, like, they... You've got to have, like, something that's also just nice, gentle, if you want to call it that, mellow, that somebody can, can drink. So, not just what we like. I'll never forget what Chuck Johnson said when we first went to meet him. And he said, just remember one thing. Whatever wine you make, and you don't make it to what you want, because you'll have a lot of wine to drink. Most probably. <laughs> <laughs> you got to think what your customers want. i like, that's a good point.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's good advice. Maybe be a little, little hard to to, to, do, to go in that direction, but it, it makes sense. Yes. And certainly... Uh,
3: so we certainly do listen to um, our customers as well. What their likes are and their dislikes. Trying to make something just nice, smooth, something uh, uh, everyday drinking, drinking wines especially the red wines, and the white wines, and everything else, so, something that people just enjoy and have fun, you know, and come out there and just, because, I mean, some of the, I'm trying to find the word for it, some of the wines, even red wines, are still very, maybe too much tannins, or, like, very, you need to just, like, loosen up a bit, because so, you and I, we all, Professional wine, winos, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> but the average person is not really into this. Like, you're trying to encourage them to, to start with red wine, and that it has to be something that's appealing to the average palate.
2: It's yeah. a good approach, definitely. Approachable.
0: It yeah. is yeah. What, you, what you want.
3: Uh-huh. I mean, so even like us, I like mean, besides North Carolina, wine or North Carolina wines, I mean, we drink a lot of, whether it's Brunello's, Barolo, uh, Bordeaux's different European wines. So, you have a taste for some of the different types of wines but most people, some people wouldn't even know much about that, even right. heard of it. Right. So, you're not trying to make a wine that they're going to enjoy and then encourage them to go and try other stuff too. And then the white wines, I mean, we are just trying to make a good, a nice Riesling, Dry Riesling, it's not um, sweet. Is, even that, Riesling connotations. As soon as you say Riesling, first reaction you get in the vineyard, that's our first wine you taste. People are like, oh, is it that, that sweet stuff from Germany? No, no, this is dry. <laughs> then they're like, oh, okay. And then our rose, try and make, our first rose we made was uh, 100% cab front. Beautiful. Well, then. We, couldn't, we ran out of red grapes. They couldn't use all the cab front grapes. Mm. So then the next one we'd make, like, just come up like, with the kitchen sink, right? Bit of Chardonnay, bit of Riesling, bit of a bit of this. But it started out as a joke and actually turned out fantastic. You know, just beautiful. And your bit of Merlot for the tinge that, that get that nice salmon pink color. Mm. And now we just uh, bottled our next rose and it's very similar. And we should be releasing it in about two weeks. The other one sold out as well.
0: Hmm. Rosé is still big.
3: Yes it is. Yeah, It really is.
0: And as we head into warmer months, it's going to probably be the go-to wine for a lot of people.
3: It's yeah. That's what they said, the judges at the last um, NC Fine Wines, they were blown away by the level of quality of the Rosés in North Carolina. They entered the competition.
2: Well, that actually might be a good thing to talk about, but I think we're right now we're at a good point to take a quick little break and why don't we when we come back let's talk about how the quality is definitely elevating over the years. I think that's a great okay. thing to pick up on. It sounds good. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths, Jesse and Jessica. Welcome back.
0: Hey, thank you. So we're continuing our conversation about compounds and wine what
4: what are we talking about today today we're going to be talking about terpenes
0: okay (laughs) heard of them not sure i know what they are though so uh tell us a little bit more
4: yeah so terpenes are a, a large class of aromatic organic compounds that are produced by plants so not just grapes but many different kinds of plants And they're the main components that make up essential oils of plants. Um, There's hundreds of terpenes, and each has its own unique scent. Kind of the science and the organic chemistry of the compound is they're derived from a five-carbon unit. So they have the formula C5H8. And in grapes and wine, mostly they exist as monoterpenes. And so they're going to have multiples of that terpene unit. And those have the compound C10H16. So there's hundreds of terpenes in plants everywhere. (laughs) But over 50 terpene compounds have been identified in grapes and wine. And some of those are pretty telltale and will jump out at you as we kind of work through and go through this. Hmm. So terpenes are widely used in fragrances and flavors and consumer products like perfumes, even cosmetics and cleaning products. Foods and drinks. And we'll learn that terpenes also lend the aroma and flavor of hops that are really important in beer. Hmm. And some terpenes are also present in cannabis. And so there's this big movement lately about identifying and kind of pursuing specific terpenes and, and different qualities based on that in cannabis, which I found kind of interesting. Terpenes exist in grapes and wine. They are either bound volatile terpenes or unbound free volatile terpenes. And the volatile terpenes are two to eight times more common than the freeform volatile compound terpenes in wine. So the ones that are bound don't make as much of a contribution to their aroma until they become hydrolyzed, which occurs when acids or other enzymes are added or present in the winemaking process. So that's kind of an important next step there. Also interesting is that terpenes can have a naturally occurring antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and calming effect. And they're going to pass that along into the wine as well. But yeah, so that's a little bit about the science of the compound.
2: So tell us, how does it it come to be? How does it get there in the grape itself?
4: Yeah, so terpenes originate in the exocarp or the skin of the grapes. And so we'll talk about the winemaking process in a little bit and how this kind of manifest through there. We know that and as I talked about terpenes can be commonly added to food, even beer and other beverages and different products, but we're not going to see them typically added to wine. Instead, they're present in the grapes and there are certain techniques that the winemaker or the vineyard manager can help use to bring about the terpenes and manifest those in the finished product. Mm.
2: So they're present in the grapes. That means they're they are a primary compound, then, right?
1: Exactly.
2: Yeah. Excellent. I got that right.
1: (laughs) You're
2: paying attention.
1: Yeah. So to move into like the actual process and how we can make terpenes stick out more, um, as far as the vineyard, you want to make sure you know you have a good trellis system and vigor control, and you really work on shoot thinning and and leaf thinning because you want that light penetration to the fruit zone. Sunlight exposure has been shown to increase the terpene compound. And they've done studies. We read a study about this with Riesling grapes. So we saw that. as far as that, that's about the only thing we saw with the vineyard of things you could do. It just kind of is in the skin of the grapes. But the winemaking process, there's quite a bit there. So the first thing with the crush process, so wines with the skin left on during fermentation, i.e. red wine, <laughs> you get more terpenes um, because obviously they're in the skins and so they'll have longer contact to come out. White wines, when the skin's removed, can eliminate some of the stronger terpenes, but that does allow some of the lighter floral terpenes that you know, may be inside of the grape to come out. So the terpenes are mostly in the skin, but there are some throughout the grape itself. And they found that there was a study about Gewürztraminer and extended maceration gave higher concentrations of terpenes, which makes sense. You know, the longer it sits and and macerates, the more terpenes you're going to get because they're in the grape itself.
2: That does make sense. Yeah.
1: Another thing winemakers can do is picking the yeast. So we see that with most compounds. And I think we're going to continue to see that theme throughout is that, you know, the labs that are creating these yeast strains um, for winemaking are a lot of that creation is based on getting these compounds that you want in your wine. So terpenes are one of those. So there are different strains of yeast in the fermentation process that will break down the sugar better. The reaction between that primary sugar will kind of help create these, these terpenes, these secondary, these processes. So yeast strain is always important with any of the compounds we've been talking about.
2: So I guess you mentioned, you know, so yeast strain is definitely important, like you said, but I, I guess also the the grape varietal too makes a difference then. So you mentioned definitely. Riesling for sure and Gewurztraminer. So I guess maybe like thinking of other kind of floral, really highly aromatic wines, I would think like, you know, Tremonette or maybe Muscat would be yes. kind of also up there.
1: Mm-hmm. Muscat's a big one. We haven't seen anything on Tremonette, but that's Probably more so because it's a hybrid and there's not a ton of research done on that, you know, globally. Um, Another thing, the wood from barrels used to ferment, like if you're fermenting in in oak barrels or aging, um, the wood can contain terpenes as well and other, obviously other compounds. But so terpenes can come from the wood. It's a very small portion. It's mostly from the grape, but you could argue that you do get some terpenes from the aging process. So I guess that would be a tertiary compound as well.
2: Hmm. So they're all over the place, in the grape, in the winemaking, in the aging.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, the the wood, the oak, the tree is a plant also, and since it right. exists mm-hmm. in all plants, it's there too. Makes sense. This is
4: another example where wine is not so friendly. Like, I want, a, like, a clear, straight answer. <laughs> and
1: it's it's yes and.
4: Right. <laughs> and always. Always, yeah. Always oh, wine.
1: And then the other interesting thing we found with, like, the, the process of wine is aging and how it affects, I know, you know, we talked about esters and how the longer it ages, they blow off. And we see that kind of with terpenes too. So when terpenes oxidize as they age, there's a loss of the varietal character in the wines. And it kind of depends. So there's some different terpenes that have certain flavors. So flavors such as geranium, lavender, rose, those type of terpenes decrease during aging. For example, linalool is a terpene that is in Riesling wines, and it's been shown to decrease 80% over three years. So Hmm. over three years, it falls below its detection threshold. Hmm. So these are another one of those delicate aromas that as a wine ages, especially with whites, you know, you pick up on these aromas a lot more with whites. But as a wine ages, a lot of these will fall out.
2: Hmm. So drink them young while you can.
1: Yes. Going back to the contradiction that always exists in wine, there are some monoterpenes that will actually increase with aging, but they're anise or mint are some of the examples of those, which you kind of probably see more with red wine. So that's probably strategic how that worked out that way. But aging does play a factor into into your terpenes and what you're going to get when you open that bottle of wine.
2: Very interesting. So we talked about what the compound is. We talked about how it kind of comes to be and how it progresses in the winemaking process and how much we can sense it. So how would we play into the flavors and kind of pairing off of these?
4: Yeah. So in wine, terpenes are going to present anywhere from sweet and floral to resin and herbaceous based on the varietal and, and the terpenes present. You can play those up that way. But so in wine, like I said, it can really run the gamut, and in plants too, from these herbaceous Christmas tree, floral pine herbs, like all of these, it really runs the course of these different flavor profiles. You know, even in wine, we might have like oregano and rosemary, peppercorn roses and lavender we've talked about. These can all kind of be traced back to terpenes. When you open a bottle of wine that's high in terpenes, the telltale sign is going to be that intense aroma when you open the bottle. The terpenes can affect the profile of wine in three different ways. We can either, it can impart that unique smell and taste, complement other flavors, or help prevent the wine from going off. So like I said, it can really be a variety of different flavors, and aromas that might be present. And these might be present in really small concentrations, but they can have a considerable impact on how we perceive them. Very so cool. we'll get into some specific examples now.
1: Yeah, because like terpenes is this big body of compounds, right? And in that large group, we have a lot of different terpenes that have different smells. So we were going to go through a few examples and the wines they're with. So we have, and I'm going to mess up all the pronunciations of these. So I'm just going to throw that out there right (laughs) now. We have linalool. And so that's a terpene that gives lavender, orange blossom, lily. And we see that with Grenache Cote de Rhone wine. We have geraniol, which is the rose petal smell. And we see that in muscat blanc and some of the other muscats as well. We have hotrianol. And that is the smell of a linden blossom, which I have no idea what that smells like. Or an elderflower smell that we see in Sauvignon Blancs. And then then they get to like some of them where they don't even give them a good name. And it's like <laughs> 1,8 hyphen <laughs> like. But that can be a eucalyptus smell that you can get in Australian red wines, which it's crazy that it's that specific. But that is the eucalyptus uh, smell, which is also found in eucalyptus trees that give them their smell. So that compound is eucalyptus.
4: You know, I'm yeah. drinking an Australian red right now, and I'm not getting any eucalyptus. <laughs> Normally, I'm very suggestible, too. So
1: <laughs> There's rotundone, which is one that we may come back to later. We haven't decided yet, but that's the peppercorn. Um, you can get that in Syrahs or even Gruner Vettliners. So those are some of the big ones with the, you know, the wines that go with them. But as as was mentioned, they, they run the gamut. You know, it's a plant compound. So it can be almost any smell you can imagine because plants have a million different smells.
2: Sure. They're mm-hmm. all over the place. <laughs> and that's our cat. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Our cats
4: are in concert with each other. <laughs> but yeah, so we did kind of pull together a few uh, food pairing ideas, and it was a little bit difficult to pair it down because um, there are so many different ways you could go with this. You could go the herbaceous or the floral, you know. So we picked kind of a few standouts just to think through. But we talked about Gavert's demeanor um, and the terpene that flavor that really comes through would be like that really gardeny floral. So for this, a pairing might be something Mediterranean or Moroccan with roasted fruit and meat, or even a nice curry. Um, I did see one recommended food pairing would be artichokes with a Grover's which I can't say I've done, um, but could see it working. Another potential food pairing we had was a muscat. So that terpene flavor that's going to come through would be a rose that we associate with this. And to me, something that popped up would be sushi good pairing with that sure. I mean, you know sushi is a wide category so there can be a lot of different things you could go or different directions you could go with that within <laughs> the category of sushi obviously but yeah but yeah the other
2: way. I, I think i'm trying to think back over the times when we've had muscat and what have we had it with and i definitely think you know sushi was one of them like shellfish in general just kind of something lighter i think nothing mm-hmm. too too heavy so, we've
0: heard the recommendation before of Gerbert with Caesar salad, which we haven't mm. been able to
2: try ourselves,
0: but it would be something interesting to
2: yeah, those floral compounds yeah. definitely are interesting to pair off of each other, mm-hmm, but I could also see something like with a, a really like kind of heavy spice blend on there too to to pair off some of the floral notes, maybe something with a little bit of uh, a little bit of lavender, or a little bit of like a, a floral note, so like a Bama mm-hmm. or something like that would be really good oh. Yeah, All right, nice.
4: Um And then to go kind of the other end of it, with more of the herbaceous pepper notes, um, something like a shiraz might pair nicely with some smoked meats or like brisket or sausage or something like that to play off of those. For
2: sure. Yeah, I could see that. And then also like if you want to go more vegetarian too, something with like a, a nice peppery mushroom too, I think mm. that would go really really well. That sounds great. Excellent. So any parting words on terpenes?
4: I don't have any terpuns for you. <laughs> <laughs> end on, but there we go. <laughs> well,
2: Jesse, Jessica, this has been great. We learned a lot about something that we knew nothing about, and we look forward to the next one. Thank you, thank you. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website winemouths.com or on Facebook and Instagram at winemouths that's w-i-n-e-m-o-u-t-h-s and now back to the show. All right so we're back with Larry and Elizabeth so let's talk a little bit about where we left off with quality and I think your comment about how there were wine judges at the NC Fine Wine saying how the rosés in the state they were really really impressed with the ro- the quality of the rosé so let's talk a little bit about the quality that you've seen.
3: Well, like I said, uh, Matt, in the last uh, 20 years, you've seen an unbelievable increase in the quality of wine in North Carolina. We've seen it as well, even the five years that we've been involved and in trying to push the envelope here to, to get these specific tastes out there and the general quality of the wine. And it takes, it takes, uh, it takes quite some doing to do that and but as you know you have to have the grapes as well all starts in the vineyard if you don't have that well you can't make great wine so a lot of the grape growers and the independent vineyards are growing some fantastic wine uh, grapes and uh, even like uh, Bruno's Blend Uh, Bruno's Blend was selected of 13 of the wines to go to uh, James Suckling you got 91 points. Was rated by James Suckling, which you are very proud of, for a little vineyard, a little boutique vineyard, um, to be rated by James Suckling, who is a worldwide um, renowned wine critic, and I think he's based in Hong Kong. Hmm. Yeah. But, yes. uh, yeah. So we've seen an incredible um, the white wine as well. Even think about the white wine. I can remember 20 years ago, it was hardly drinkable, was like vinegar. I mean, I might as well drink apple cider vinegar in those days. No, truly, I mean. Before it was a health <laughs> fad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was like, I mean, you'd, and you'd, the, the white wines and uh, even blends, white wine blends being produced now. And even some of this, the, the hybrids, whether it's Chardonnay, I just love like a, a dry Chardonnay. I think it's unbelievable what's being done here. And we don't want to, we don't want to be like California other places. This is North Carolina. We want North Carolina wines. We want Yadkin Valley wines. There's such a huge opportunity waiting for us here in North Carolina. It's just going to, it's going to just, in the next five years, just, I just see growth, like, unbelievable. And there's a place for everybody. It's a place for the big commercial-style uh, vineyards, and it's a place for people to come and just have to spend quite couple of hours at a small boutique winery. Be part of the family, so to speak. So every vineyard has its place. Like any business. Yeah, the, the quality is definitely... And with all the people involved. And the college. They've really promoted the quality of uh, the grape growing in uh, North Carolina. And I, I would think with all the, um, the science side of it. The technology of, of growing grapes has come a long way compared to 20 years ago, which obviously helps. Better farming practices, better use of insecticides, not using harsh chemicals, and we're trying our best not to use harsh chemicals. We'd like to be organic, if possible, but it's very difficult in North Carolina, Sure. as you know. Yeah. Humidity, rain, too much mm-hmm. rain, it's tough. We we do it very sparingly, put it that way. At least you know what you're drinking. I think most of the Yakin Valley wines are, they try their best.
2: I think you bring up a really good point, a couple of them, actually, just in the past couple of minutes. I mean, you do know what you're drinking because you're, you know the people who are making it. So you know, kind of, you see the grapes that are going into it. You see the product that's going to come out of it. Um, and I also like the part that you brought up about... There's so much diversity when it comes to the small boutique wineries or the big commercial places. So we do have that here in the state. We, we have something for everyone. If they want to go to a larger commercial type of tasting room or, or something larger, big scale, they can. If they want to go to a small you know, boutique, really tiny, be part of the family, as you mentioned, they have that availability in the state too.
3: Yes, for sure. And I would even see like agritourism becoming very big in the next five to ten years. Like, people are on there all the time, every weekend I'm there. When are you going to build some log cabins or little yurts up there or on the hillside? We'll stay here all the time. We'll spend weekends here. People just want to get out there and stay there. And that's what we loved. When we first started going, like, to Tuscany and that, staying in small little vineyards where they have five or ten bedrooms, a little restaurant there. It's big, like, in Tuscany and all that. Just huge. Versus staying at a big resort somewhere. All commercialized, you know, just a tourist trap, basically. Mm-hmm. Overpriced, everything, food's not that good. I see that just becoming huge. I mean, I would love to build maybe four or five little cabins on the mountainside there so people can stay there year-round. I could see that.
2: Keep them far enough away from the tasting room. Yeah, it could be on that ridge on the far side there. <laughs> and,
3: but they're uh, still
2: right near there, so they can come in, they can get the wine when they need it, so yeah. that's
3: good. Actually, one place we went to in Italy... Near Venice, and it was a a Prosecco farm. And they actually had like giant, it was built, designed in a giant uh, barrel. And you actually had a bedroom in there, in a bathroom, little kitchenette. So you're actually staying like in a giant wine barrel. (laughs) Oh,
2: that's fine. It is
3: cool. And actually, we were just discussing this the other night. Imagine if you built that kind of thing. People actually stayed there in this like wine, oversized wine barrel was your little house. Little cabin for the weekend. It'd be quite unique.
2: Yeah, and I mean, yeah people sure. would be talking about it for, yeah. for a while. So
3: Yeah, so like it is pretty unique. So, yeah, I really believe it's going to take off. And you see a lot of the, the vineyards are starting already. Got one cabin or a couple cabins or a little like one bedroom so people can spend the weekend or even in the week. Mm-hmm. And even for motorhomes, RVs. People, I mean, it's going to become huge. And then you have all the traffic coming up and down 77, our favorite highway, (laughs) from the north, going to Florida, people on vacation stop, we've got vineyards everywhere. Going back home, they can stop, have a break, spend the night, come to vineyards, buy wine, take it home. And we have customers come from Ohio, South Carolina, Georgia, Virginia even and Come over to us and buy the Viognier in it. But the Viognier is supposed to be the best in Virginia. And I reckon, no. It's the Atkin Valley. It's better in the Atkin Valley,
0: in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
3: I mean, I've, you know, I've had right. some of it. Yeah. Not that it's bad bad
0: yeah. in Virginia, but <laughs> it, it just seems to me the Viognier is, is much more, more tropical. Maybe we yeah. can get it more ripe so that those that tropical notes come through more. And I would say the same for Petit sake, too, I think. it's But we're probably a little bit uh, partial to that, so.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so the Highway 77, I mean, there's the traffic going up and down there, right through uh, the Yadkin Valley, I mean, and the other wineries to the north as well, and south of that. We're just ideally placed for this growth. Plus, you've got 421 going through there, Boon to Winston, all right. that. So, yeah, I, I feel very, very excited and good about the future of the wine industry. North Carolina. Next five to ten years is going to be explosive growth. Even us, I don't know how we're going, to, we're going to have to expand somehow the building and all that.
2: Well, you mentioned that. So like about you, when you first started, you said it's going to take five years. Correct. So now we're up on the five. So what is the next five years?
3: That's very challenging. <laughs> it's actually a very good question. <laughs> so um, at some point yeah, we're going to have to um, either build a new tasting room or somehow expand the current one, because when we get people on weekends now, 30, 40, 50 people there, it's crazy. Yeah. and
2: you've expanded the deck out there nicely too, because it was small before and now it's just massive. You get a whole bunch of sun. It's great.
3: Yeah. So we're trying to find a way even to put a roof on that. And then downstairs, we actually have that patio downstairs now, which is protected by the sun with that new upstairs deck. You can seat about 50 people down there. So we've had two weddings there this year already. Our first weddings, just lucky, there's great weather. So they had like 55 people downstairs, and it was like end of March, it was like 72 degrees, sunny day, no wind. Oh wow. They they lucked out for that one. (laughs) That's right. And then the other couple, they had got married upstairs, only like 30 or 40 people, so. And it was a nice day as well, and they were actually originally from California. So a lot of their family flew from California. So, I was waiting for all the um, opinions about the wine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and,
3: and, and I was quite surprised. And they said, Oh, this wine's actually pretty good. Like, can we ship it back to California? Can you ship it back to California? I said, No, we can't. They said, Well, why not? I said, Well, that's your state, not us. We don't make those decisions, <laughs> um, unfortunately. And uh, I said, You can buy some. You can take it back in your suitcase, wrap it in your. Underwear or something. (laughs) That is a break or something. So, yeah. like And so we have quite a few people from California come and they make it known. We're from California. And um, uh uh-oh. And when they taste the wine, then they're like, wow. They're quite surprised. So Yeah, I think that's a really good kind of insight too,
2: because California always has this notoriety of being like the wine producing area. But there are other states here in the country that do produce some really good wine, and we're one of them, I think. So just need to get that out there and get more people trying it.
3: Correct, and then you got uh, northern Georgia. I mean, you got you know Virginia around Charlottesville. Man. I mean, very very good wineries. So this whole region, as a region, is going to be drawing people here. Yeah, Not really. Th- You've
0: got from from the Finger Lakes down to North Georgia. Yes. Yeah growing grapes even even vermont they're growing hybrids mostly but um you know there's an opportunity for the east coast to kind of step out granted we'll never be as big as california california produces about 85 percent of the grapes that are growing in the country so it's it's going to be very no way that we could overtake that but um, certainly folks need to keep an open mind and visit these lesser known wine regions and as you've kind of talked about throughout this interview is just try and taste it you're going to find something that you like. I'm pretty exactly. sure about that. So, And you might find some surprises along the way as well. So,
3: That's right. And, keep uh, that open mind, though. That's right, uh, Joe. And that's actually a very interesting point to bring up there because we have so many people who come there and they say, ah, I don't drink that sweet stuff. I only drink the dry stuff. And they say, oh, just, it's on the tasting, just try it. And then usually the people end up buying some of the stuff, whether it's Sweet Amelia or it's mm-hmm. the. Um, Truly. And then the yeah. opposite way, the other effect too. People come, no, oh, I don't drink wine. dry stuff. I Only drink the sweet wine. So-called, you know, ours isn't like treacle, so it's not sweet, sweet per se. We try and keep the sugar levels down all more like. So, uh, and then there, people convert from say, um, the peach or the pineapple to uh, a Riesling or, or the Viognier. And they, they saw blind when they came in there, they would never drink that stuff. <laughs> So it's amazing to watch. It's actually quite amazing to watch. Amazing to see people who have become regulars even convert from sweet wine to red wine. That's truly the most amazing thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is. But you gotta start somewhere. You gotta so. start.
3: Oh, when I first started drinking wine in South Africa, I used to drink special late harvest. <laughs> and the first time I tasted red wine, I was like, oh, this is a terrible, this is the most disgusting. Who drinks this stuff? <laughs> No, I only drink red wine, basically, but I'll drink most wines. And just coming back to what I was saying, I when I think about it, um, that's actually one of our a very simple philosophy we have at, at Brandon Hills. If we can't drink the wines we sell, then we shouldn't be selling them. Every single wine there, I can drink. Elizabeth and Justin. If we can't drink it, I shouldn't be selling it.
0: Yeah, you've got to stand behind your brand. Well, I sell something that exactly. you can't stand behind?
3: Exactly. So, you know that, I mean, most of my wines, our wines, I, mean, I drink at home, even. serve to our friends.
2: Well, and as you should, you have that passion, so you want to show the, what you're making, what you're doing, but also, how's it aging, how's it doing, what are other people thinking about it, it's kind of a good way to have a, a unique focus group. Exactly. See what people want to know. Right.
3: Yeah, so that, that, that's what we work on as well. And, uh, yeah, things are looking very good. So, tell us a
2: little bit about, so you've been doing this for five years now, so tell us some of the things that you've learned. What's made the biggest impact on you throughout the years?
3: Uh, I would say, I think we discussed the, um, uh, the climate and all the stuff that goes into making a bottle of wine. Is it the most impact on me, personally? What, what goes into just making one bottle of wine, it's just like... Before we did this, you just take it for granted, you go to a winery or total wine, you buy a bottle of wine or two, come home, open it, drink it. You don't even think about the consequences, what it took to make that. Now I look at it, every time I open a bottle of wine, I look at it totally differently. (laughs) So, yeah.
2: So do you want to hold on to that and treasure it? Or do you want to drink to it knowing everything that's gone into it?
3: I think treasure it. Okay. So yeah, certainly, it certainly opens your mind to different things, and like a lot of people, unless you've experienced it, you don't really know, right? Unfortunately, people just buy a or buy some wine, drink it there. Nothing wrong with that. We like you to drink the wine, but <laughs> <laughs> when you're actually involved in it on a, in a, in a, on a weekly basis, it's, it's quite, uh, yeah, it's quite amazing what it all goes into it, and having good people, you know working there.
2: There's more than just grapes that go into
3: wine. Exactly. And just coming back to what you're saying there about the the winery as well, like we were speaking about the commercial wineries and then the smaller boutique wineries, like at Brandon Hills, so we, um, we want to give you the complete package where you can come there, like we said, be part of the family, peace and quiet, bring a picnic basket. We have 40 acres there. You can enjoy yourself, spend the afternoon, spend the day if you want, you know, what's the sunset too. Beautiful sunsets. Uh, and so the whole total experience, not just coming in there, here's the five wines, taste them, thank you, out the door. Actually just relax, enjoy some wines, uh, enjoy the whole atmosphere. Justin Wilmoth, the tasting room manager, great guy, done a fantastic job uh, in the tasting room, promoting the wine, teaching people about different wines, like we said, converting people from sweet wine to red wine. I mean, <laughs> there's something incredible to see how people have changed over the years, and better for their health anyway, so yeah. get all those sugars out there. So um, and there's nothing wrong with sweet wine, everybody has a place, whether it's muscadines and all that, it all has its place in North Carolina. This East North Carolina, all has its place. Yeah. Every wine has its place.
2: So what is it you want, uh, we're kind of winding down on our questions here, but what is one thing that you want customers to know when they come visit Brandon Hills Vineyard?
3: That you're going to have a great experience and you're going to enjoy yourself. You're going to taste some of the best wines in the Yadkin Valley, whether it's dry wines or sweet wines. And you're going to leave there and go home to wherever you live and tell your friends and colleagues you need to go out and taste some of the North Carolina wines. Because like we said, all people think about, as soon as you tell them that, oh, it's that sweet stuff. It's the first thing that enters their minds. Like, we, we somehow, have to, somehow have to get over this, whether it's on TV adverts, uh, more better uh, branding, to get this, this terrible connotation of sweet wine. And we've come a long way North Carolina. We already have come a long way in trying to stop that uh, negative press, that negative uh, understanding of North Carolina. That's how I see it.
0: And certainly that word of mouth and hearing it from your friend, and those are people that you trust, and so you trust their opinion. Those are the kind of things that are probably going to be the most impactful.
3: That is correct, Joe. I would say most of ours is by word of mouth over the five years. But people come here then, they go tell their friends at work, pre-COVID and all that, and uh, then their friends come, oh, so-and-so told us to come here. We were in the area, or in the neighborhood, and you'd be surprised how many people come around here. Huntersville, Roseville, this area, man, a lot of people, Cornelius, a lot of people come up there, spend the day and visit all the wineries in the area.
0: Sure, it's it's an easy day, tri- day trip. Yeah, so not it, far at all.
3: It's, yeah, it's good to get out of the city. Yeah. Why fly to California and you go, right here? My That's country's great.
0: in your backyard.
3: Exactly. <laughs> and really producing some good stuff. Truly, yeah. just wow. I'm amazed what happened in the five years. The future looks very good for North Carolina. But we look forward to it.
0: Yeah. So Elizabeth, one question for you. You mentioned in a break that that this this is Larry's hobby. What do you think of his hobby?
3: Well, at first I thought he was crazy, but... <laughs> See, this is where I was... <laughs> I am well, a bit crazy. This is why I asked the question. <laughs> well, you have to be
0: a
2: bit crazy get in the business. <laughs> I agree.
3: <laughs>
2: but the more he's done it and the more we've got into this, it's actually not a bad idea at all. It's, it's turned out to be really good.
0: It sounds like it's more of a passion now than a hobby.
3: Oh, for sure. For sure. I always tease him, it's a very expensive hobby. <laughs> <laughs> so now he can't talk about my hobbies. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Any hobby worth doing it is worth doing it well. Exactly. exactly.
3: Well, like we said too, right? You have to have a passion for wine. Yeah, right. You have to have it, and even over the top passion, because if you don't, you won't succeed. It's a very tough business to be in. And also, just going back to what you're saying too, like the people in the industry, right? Like, I really thought, like, being in the steel business and all this, like, it's just cutthroat, right? Man, I couldn't believe when we first went there. People just like, everybody was so nice, trying to help you. Like, wow, okay, we'll come out, we'll bring a tractor, we'll do this, we'll help you get going. Like, wow, this is unbelievable. Like, one big family trying to help each other. And it's, it's truly quite remarkable. Not many industries to get that kind of true, like, yeah. com- camaraderie almost right. and help each other, right? Like we'd be willing to help anybody in our little way. Um, like I said, Chuck and Jamie had done a lot for us, get us going and put us on this sort of like straight and narrow over there. So, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. But in the end, it's the, for the good of North Carolina wine. If everybody's got great wine, more and more people are going to come. Absolutely. Yep. So the, the stragglers need to be lifted up a bit here, you know, so to speak. It's not a bad thing. It's just, it's, 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 the future is fantastic. So.
2: so why don't you tell us uh, how can people find you both physically and also online?
3: Okay, we do have a website at uh, BrandonHills.com vineyard.com. Then we're on Facebook and Instagram as well. And uh, we are at about three miles south of Yadkinville. Just to a 421. Very close to an overpark. Park. It's almost like our sister winery, right? Almost like within. You could throw a stone and hit each other. So. <laughs> That's right. That's very true. So, um, yeah. If you're going like in the area and you're like just to a 421 and uh I-77 like you're in that vicinity pop by and see us you'll have have a great time we second that we recommend it thank you very much
2: well larry elizabeth thank you it's been a pleasure
3: yes thank you very much for coming by
2: that's it for this episode of cork talk
0: thanks again to larry and elizabeth they were great hosts and we can't wait for our next visit
2: if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve.
0: Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find more information at patreon.com slash cork talk.
2: And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC1Guys. Until next time,
0: and remember cork only talks. without out of the bottom. Cheers! Corp Talk is a free run LLC production.
2: This episode was made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.